Sanford podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. As we're thinking about these days that we're living in, we want to be praying for the unreached people groups around the world. We want to be praying for all the people in our community who are hurting right now, those that have lost their jobs. And we also want to be celebrating mothers. Now, some of you, you know, Mother's Day is a tough day for you because you think about your mom. Maybe she's passed away or maybe you want to be a mom desperately. We want to use this day to celebrate all moms, but also celebrate women. We thank God for every woman of God in this church, and we thank God for you. And as we're thinking about that, we're continuing our series in the book of Esther. So take your copy of God's Word and turn to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. Esther chapter 2 and verse number 1. Here's what God's Word has to say. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his, of, of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women." Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, so that when the king's ordered, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody to Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven choice young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king Hasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. You know, we live in a culture that is obsessed with physical beauty. It's obsessed with appearances. People want to be celebrities. People want to be known. There's a movement amongst a lot of young people. They want to be TikTok famous. They want to be Insta famous. 
People want to be able to look in the mirror and feel good about themselves. They want people to see them. And so how they wear their clothes, what they wear, they always want to keep up with the latest and greatest styles. People want to look like the models that they see in magazines. People want to have their Facebook posts go viral, their Instagram stories go viral. People want to be known, they want to be loved, they want to be cherished. And there has never been a time in history where our culture has been more bombarded with images of what the culture sees as attractivity and being an attractive person than in our day. We want to be beautiful. We want to be seen as beautiful and we want to see beauty because we're beauty hounds. And this issue is not a new issue. It's an old issue. And we see this in the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther talks a lot about appearances. Just last week, we we talked about King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, who was obsessed with showing off. He was obsessed with showing out and letting everyone see how great he is. And what we see here is that in chapter 2, we see the same thing, but we see women being objectified. We see everything about appearances and the superficial. And it's, it's interesting because as we read the book of Esther, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is this. How is it that we as believers, how can we keep our faith living in a culture that is dominated by people who have different belief systems, different worldviews. And how can we keep our faith in a culture that is obsessed with the external, the temporary, and the superficial? I think the book of Esther gives us those answers. And even today, as we look at this, that's what we're going to be talking about, is how do we deal with those things? Now, again, I want to reiterate, the book of Esther is probably one of the most unique books in the Bible. It is the most unique in this one way. God's name is not mentioned. There are no prophecies, there are no miracles, there are no prayers, there's no repentance. But yet, even though we feel like God is nowhere in the book, He's everywhere in the book. Even though He is behind the scenes working and we don't necessarily see Him, we know that He is working on the scenes to bring about His glory and our good. So as we get to chapter 2, here's what I want you to get from this. Chapter 2 regardless of maybe some of the movies you've seen, is not a fairy tale story. It's not a romance story of Cinderella and Prince Charming. Don't try to make this a Disney movie. It is a story of moral compromise. It's a story of beauty obsession. And it's a story of insecurity. And what it does, and what I love about the Bible, is it gets to the very heart of the human condition, a condition that chases after beauty. And when you chase after beauty, that will always lead to compromise and competition that only can be cured and healed by Jesus Christ. So let's look here at the first point, chasing after beauty. In verses 1 through 4, here's what happens. The Bible says that after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had been abated, there's kind of a, this is a scene change. We, we just went from where Queen Vashti had been deposed. Now we move to about three or four years later. King Xerxes had banished Z- uh, Vashti and he has now went out to war. He has fought the Greeks for about three or four years and, and he wanted to be successful. He wanted to be the king of all kingdoms, but yet he suffered major defeat at the hands of the Greeks. And so the Bible says that as he comes back home, he remembered Vashni and he remembered what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He's now replaying in his mind what happened. But he doesn't have these thoughts of anger now. It's sadness. 
He's depressed over his divorce. He, he sees everybody coming home from war with their wife and their children there, hugging and greeting them. And he doesn't have anybody. He comes home to some big empty palace, but there's no Vashti. Now think about it. This is the guy who throws six-month parties. This is the guy who calls himself the king of kings, who wants praise, who wants glory, who wants gifts brought to him and songs sung about him. But here in this moment, he's miserable. His best friends right now are Jim Bean, Jack Daniels, and Jose Cuervo. He's probably sitting on the back porch of his palace, and he's sitting there listening to Little Texas, hearing that song, I try not to think about what might have been because that was then and we've taken different roads. And so in his mind, he's back there and he's depressed and he's sad. So as he's depressed and sad in verse number two, there's these young men who are his advisors who come to give him some advice. Now, it's never really good to get advice from young men. Just going to tell you that straight up right now. But here's their advice. Hey, we know what will help you. We know what will cheer you up. We're going to play the bachelor in Persia. We're going to find the best looking unmarried women from all over the empire. We're going to give them a spa treatment, beauty treatments. And then you can hand out the rose to the one woman that makes you the happiest. You can marry her. You can replace Vashni. You can get the nasty taste of Vashni out of your memories and you can move on with your life. They essentially say, you know what, Xerxes, you can fill the void of your life with beauty. What you need right now is you need a new relationship. You need to get back on the saddle and you need to stop being lonely, stop being unhappy and find a new wife. Because if you find a new, beautiful, young wife, she's going to fix all your problems. Now, you say, oh, that's crazy. Well, that's how we think today. How many of you that are married, you, you, you think of your spouse and here's what you, you don't necessarily say to them, but you say to them, I want you to meet my expectations. I want you to fulfill my needs. I want you to fill my love cup. Here's the problem with that. There is no human relationship on this earth that will ever be able to meet all your expe expectations and fulfill all your needs. That's why people get divorced. People get married and it's an ideal. Then after a while it turns into an ordeal and people now want a new deal. Why is that? Because people are giving job descriptions to their spouses that only Jesus can satisfy. And that's what happens with Vashni. She didn't meet his expectations. And just because she doesn't meet them doesn't mean somebody else knew is going to meet him. But in his mind, that's what he thinks. So that's why in verse number four, the Bible says that it pleased the king. It made him happy. He said, you know what? That's a good, that's a good idea. I, I, you know, I think I, I want to be the bachelor. So you think about this. Xerxes doesn't repent of his sin against Vashni. What he does is he tries to avoid the guilt. He tries to ignore the guilt by hiding it under the blanket of indulgence. He wants to numb the pain. He doesn't want to deal with the pain. He just wants to move on with his life. And so he's looking for love. He's looking for beauty. And he wants that beauty that he can find to meet his needs and satisfy his longings. He was not a lover. He was a user. And why? Because whether we want to admit it or not, and whether he wanted to admit it or not, he was a product of his culture. The Persian culture said this, Men, to be successful, you need to have power, and you need to have money, and you need to have a beautiful wife. Women, if you want to be successful, you've got to be beautiful, you've got to be famous, and you've got to have a good husband. So, you find men trying to find their beauty and power and money and sex, and women trying to find their beauty and beauty, appearance, fame, and who they're married to. 
And it's all superficial. It's all external. And it's all appearance. And that was the Persian culture then. And guess what? That's our culture today. Now, maybe some of the actors may change. Maybe some of the roles of men and women may change just because the way our society is. But the heart of the issue and the heart never changes. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this about sin. He says, sin is the self bent in on itself. The Latin word, incurvitus in se. That is, we were made to praise and worship the beauty and splendor of God. But because of sin, we turn what should be directed towards God to ourselves. We seek to glorify ourselves rather than glorify God. And so the result of that is we make everything about us. We, we make everything, uh, our money, our pleasure, our wants, our hurts, our longing, our dreams, our needs about us. And what happens is when you make everything about you, you end up miserable. What happens in the human heart is that we were meant for the glory of God, who is the source of all glory. And instead, we have settled for reflected glory, the glory of this world. And rather than worship and serve the true glory and find our beauty in Him, we settle for reflected glory and we don't find any joy in that. See, when you chase after beauty and glory that alone belongs to God, you will always end up miserable. You'll be like Schmeagel in The Lord of the Rings, always chasing your precious. Here's a point I want you to get. Xerxes is a man that looks like he has everything, but all he can think about is what he doesn't have. Is that maybe you? So we see this chasing after beauty. But then in verse number 5, we see a different thing. We see compromise with sin. And you say, well, where do we get that? Well, let's just dive in. In verses 5 through 7, there's a scene change. We're now introduced to two really main characters that are going to be all throughout the book. Mordecai, who is found 52 times in the book, and Esther, who is found 55 times in the book. They were Jews who lived in the capital, the summer capital of Persia, Susa. Mordecai was adopted uh, Mordecai is the one who adopted Esther as a child when her parents died. She was his cousin, and they lived there in Susa. Now, why is that important? Well, in 538 B.C., King Cyrus had allowed all the Jews who wanted to to return home. But what we see here in the text is that Mordecai and his family chose to stay in Susa. So more than likely, as we read this, we're kind of imagining that Mordecai was a Persian official. Now, they were still a religious minority, a Jew, in a dominant culture that was the opposite of, of their culture. They were strangers living in a strange land, but yet, as you read here, they've assimilated very well to the dominant culture. You say, well, how do you see that? Well, just look at Mordecai's name. Mordecai's name is not a Hebrew name. It actually comes from the Babylonian pagan god Morduk. It's a form of that. So here, Mordecai has a pagan name. And then we have Esther here who has two names. We have Esther uh, and we have Hadassah. Hadassah is her Jewish name. It means myrtle. Uh, but her Persian name is Esther, which can mean star or even the goddess of love. So here we have this young woman who is being raised by Mordecai, who's a Persian official, who has a, a pagan name, and she has two names. Now, we also believe that she was probably a teenager. And so as we read this, we think about this. The, the question goes back to, well, then, if you are a religious minority, like Mordecai and Esther were, how do you live in and relate to the dominant culture around you? I mean, like, what do you do? Do you just re, re, withdraw, withdraw completely and just say, you know what, I'm going to live separate from this culture. I'm going to just hide and isolate myself. 
Or do you try to fit in and maybe privatize your faith and say, you know what, I'm going to have my my public persona and my private faith. Or are you just going to protest everything in the culture that you see bad and evil? And as I'm reading just scripture, I don't think none of those fit. But here's the dilemma that, that Esther has. She has a dual identity. She is both Persian and Jewish. She lives in the world, but she's supposed to belong to God. She's supposed to be, like we're supposed to be, in the world, but not of the world. So as Hadassah, she is a Jewish woman who worships and follows Yahweh. But as Esther, she is a beautiful young woman trying to make her way in a world that cares only about appearances. And here we have in this book that we're going to see this tension early on, these two competing identities of Esther and Hadassah. And if we're honest, we all struggle with living a double life. So here this young girl was living in a, in a very broken, pagan, uh, physical appearance, obsessed society. And then verse number eight, something happens to her. She's taken. Now, when we read in verse number eight that she was taken to the king's palace, I don't want you to get the idea that she filled out an application and was selected. I don't want you to believe that she was selected to be some sort of Disney princess and have some sort of Disney princess weekend. This girl was abducted. She was sexually trafficked. This poor, maybe not necessarily poor, but this orphan Jewish woman was ripped away from her cousin Mordecai and she's now thrown into some sort of high stakes, winner take all, Miss Persia beauty pageant with the bachelor King Xerxes. Now, there were some rules to this competition. In verses 12 through 14, which we didn't have a chance to read, here, here were the rules of this pageant. One is that each woman that was selected got a year-long spa and beautification treatment plan. She was given all kinds of essential oils, all kinds of perfumes. She was given the best non-kosher foods in the world and probably was placed on an exercise regimen. Then, at a certain time, she got her number, her date, and then she would have one night with the king. After that one night with the king, she would get up in the morning and would be whisked away to another part of the palace where she would stay in a room and a place with hundreds of other women who had gone before her to see if she was going to be the winner or not. Now, the question is, is this, is that what is Esther going to do? As, as we read this, we think, well, you know, her only hope of survival is to become Esther, not Hadassah. And so the question that the Jewish reader's mind goes to in reading this is that is she going to refuse the non-kosher food? Is she going to keep the law of Moses? Will she refuse the king's request to have a night with him? Will she tell the king that she is a Jew? It's a very difficult situation. You know, the, maybe as you read this, you're thinking, you know, will she put God first and endure whatever suffering comes her way? Or will she conceal her faith and make the best out of a difficult situation and hope that God will somehow, some way, understand? Well, here's what we know. She decides to just make the best out of a very bad situation, and she compromises. You say, oh, well, how do you know that? Well, there's very different ways we know that. One is that she ate the king's meat, which wasn't kosher. She, she's going to go ahead and spend her night with the king. She, she's going to eventually, we're going to see Mary, a man who wasn't a, a believer. And, and, and one of the big things that we see is in verse number 10, that Esther rises in the ranks, but she doesn't reveal her identity. She doesn't reveal that she's Jewish. Now, the verse 10 tells us that Mordecai, her, her cousin, said, don't do that. And, and listen, she probably wanted to be obedient, 
but it was still her choice. She chooses to conceal her faith. She chooses to embrace the values of the culture around her. She chooses to rely on her looks and charms to make it through a very horrible situation. One commentator put it this way. He said, Esther's progress in one world, the world of the empire of Xerxes, came at the cost of completely suppressing her identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor, seems awful harsh. You seem very judgmental. You, Pastor, would probably do the same thing if you were in her situation. You know, I'm not sure. I pray that I would be different. But I want you to remember that there was another young person, a guy named Daniel, and three Hebrew children, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, who just a few decades prior to Esther in Daniel chapter 1 refused to break their faith, refused to eat the, king, the, the king's meat, refused to break kosher. They refused to break the values of the culture around them. And what they did is instead they relied on the mercy of God to protect them. Well, here Esther is relying on her beauty, her charms, and following the rules of the culture to protect her. And you know, here's what I've learned. And I want to speak especially to some of the young women listening. It is a whole lot easier to be Esther than it is to be Hadassah. It is easier to compromise with sin. It's easier to go with the flow. It is easier to follow the rules of the culture than to be different. It is so much easier to just do what everybody else is doing because you're easily accepted. Nobody thinks you're a weirdo. Nobody thinks that you're crazy. No one makes fun of you. And maybe you can kind of live this dual life where outwardly on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook, you're one person, but privately you still love God. You still call yourself a Christian. Don't buy into that lie. The culture says to be successful, to be satisfied or to be happy, you've got to do the beauty treatments of the world. And if you don't do what we say and if you don't do what we do, then you'll be a nobody. That is a lie. And Esther here believed that lie and she compromised with the world in following it. Why? Because she was chasing after beauty, just like Xerxes. But guess what else it leads to? When you chase after beauty, it leads you to compromise with sin, but also leads you to compete with other people. Now, in verse 14, I wanted you to see what it says here, that as, as the rules of the game, it was a winner-take-all. And the Bible says that she would not go into the king again. If you were in this contest and you went and spent your night with the king, you would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in you and you were summoned by name. So I want you to kind of understand a little bit more of the background here and even the high stakes of this whole thing. If you, after you spent your one night with the king, after a year of spa and beauty treatments, if you weren't chosen to be queen, you couldn't go back home. You couldn't go back to your family. You couldn't go back to your friends. You couldn't get married. You couldn't have children unless the king says, hey, we're going to have children. You wouldn't have a husband. You would have nobody to love you, no family, no freedom. You, Yes, you would get to live alone in a very nice house, but you would be in a big house with a thousand other women who were just like you, not good enough. See, the culture of that day said this, do everything you can to make yourself look beautiful and then maybe if you're really good and do everything right, the king will remember your name and call you again sometime. Tim Kaine, who writes on the book of Esther, said this. He says, imagine the insecurities of these women and how they feel. Surrounded by the most beautiful women in the empire, 
They're always looking over their shoulder, always comparing themselves to others, always obsessed with their flaws and how they don't think they're pretty as the other women. We live in a world of constant comparison. We live in a world of what have you done for me lately? It starts in elementary school, to middle school, to high school, to college, to work, to social media, to dinner parties, to working out at the gym, to social events. We all feel the pressure to compete. Even as a pastor, there's this pressure to compete in the midst of what's going on. We are looking at what is somebody else doing? What is some other church doing? We all have this pressure to one up another, to be better, to be thinner, to be faster, to be prettier, to be smarter. But here's what I want you to hear. The comparison game never ends well. Never. You rarely win. And if you do win, it's always at a high price. So in verse 15, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says here that when it came Esther's turn, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's unit, who had been in charge of the women, advised. And she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Esther is in it to win it. So she gets her number in line to be with the king. She does whatever the king's lead servant, Haggai, says. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. And what you see here is essentially, as you read this, she sells out her faith to win the prize. She's in a competition. She will do whatever it takes to be queen, to be chosen, to be loved, to be wanted, to be summoned by the king. And I think about how many of us are willing to sell out our souls for one night with the king. So, as you read the text, what happens? Esther wins. In verse 16, the Bible says that when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the women. And so he set the royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. She won. She is crowned Miss Persia. She caught the final rose from Xerxes. He loved Esther more than all the other women. You know, maybe he was singing to all the girls I've loved before. I don't know. But here we have this moment. He says, I love you. And she is made queen. She's done it. She's compromised. She's competed. And she's won. But here's the thing. Think about this. She knows, has to know, that down the hall are hundreds of women just waiting for her to mess up. There are hundreds of women waiting for her to pull a Vashti. Here's what I want you to hear. When you chase after beauty and you compromise with sin and maybe you win, even though you succeeded yesterday at being beautiful, you still have to wake up today and start all over again. You have to reapply your makeup. You have to redo your hair. You have to live every day knowing that each day you live, you get older and older. And the older you get, the harder it is to maintain the level of beauty that you are going to need to be accepted in the culture. It's never enough. You may win today, but you may not win tomorrow. You may not win the next day because when you are in this rat race of our culture, you're never going to be enough. See, we have bought into the lie of our culture that says this. We judge others by their appearances and we judge them, we judge their worth on how they look in the mirror. And we believe that about ourselves. We judge ourselves, our value, our worth by how we look on the mirror and how we measure up on a scale. And we have thrown ourselves into the beautification treatments of our culture, hoping that if we can achieve success, 
We can be confident and we can be secure. If we're no longer ugly, if we're no longer fat, if we're no longer out of shape, if we're successful, if we have a lot of money, if we can just be impressive, then we can impress the king and we don't have to be miserable. We don't have to, be, we don't have to live lives lonely. But the problem of it is, it's never enough. Because you'll never impress the king. You'll never measure up. And it's, if you're trying to meet the culture's obsessions, it will never, ever work. So, what's the cure? Well, there's a cure that Christ offers. And He's the only one that can offer it. I want to reiterate that this is not a romance story. This is a very real story. And maybe some of you have had your bubbles popped with, when it comes to Esther. But listen, don't be shocked that Esther is not as good as you previously thought she was. Because here's the truth. None of us are as good as we think we are. But we serve a God who is better than we can imagine and is able to do more for sinners than we had ever dreamed. See, the reason that God can do what He is going to do with Esther and what He can do in your life is because He is a better Savior than Esther was. See, if you think about most of the Bible heroes, if not all of them, they compromised in one way or the other. Abraham lied. Moses murdered a man. David slept with another man's wife. Peter denied Jesus over and over and over again. Paul persecuted and murdered Christians. This is why we don't put our trust in any of the Bible heroes. We put our trust in the, the hero of the Bible, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus comes and He offers you His hand in marriage. Now, as you think about that, for some of you men, that may seem weird. But for a lot of us, that may seem very scary. And we say, how could I ever be good enough for Jesus? Because we believe that you only are, some people in our society believe that you're only a Christian if you're good enough. And you say, well, how am I ever going to measure up? How am I ever going to be beautiful enough? How am I ever going to be good enough? Here's the good thing about Jesus. When Jesus looks for His bride, He doesn't look for the beautiful or the righteous. When He came to this world, He didn't look for the put together. He didn't look for the fixed. He looked for the sick. He looked for the unrighteous. He looked for the spiritually ugly. And He comes looking for the broken and needy, those whose lives are in shambles, and He rescues them out of His love. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even die. But God shows His love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. King Jesus makes us beautiful with the beauty of His love. The world is obsessed with self-absorption. But Jesus shows true love by self-sacrifice. See, think about this. Esther was loved because she was already beautiful. But Jesus loves you despite your flaws and He makes you beautiful. Esther gave up her life to be with the king. King Jesus truly gave up His life to be with you. That's what the gospel is. Some of you maybe saw this a few years ago, but I saw a story this week about Stuart and Hannah Peterson. They were set to get married on October the 21st, 2016. But five weeks prior to their wedding, Hannah was in a horrible car accident. 
that accident broke her pelvis. It broke vertebrae in her back and it, and it rendered her in a wheelchair. But she had planned this wedding day. If you're a little girl, the day that you have in your mind is that wedding day and you imagine what that wedding day is going to look like. And so she said, I'm going to get married on October 21st. So her dad wheeled her to the place where she was supposed to start down the aisle. And, and as her dad was about to wheel her all the way down the aisle in this big wheelchair, the groom, Stuart, does something that nobody expected. He walked all the way to the back. He picked up his bride and he carried her all the way to the altar. They said their vows. When the ceremony was over, he picked her up and he carried her out. Hannah was interviewed after that wedding, after the story went viral. And here's what she said. Hannah's a Christian, by the way. She said, this was a picture of unconditional love. He, he, when He carried me, He looked beyond my disabilities. He looked beyond the ugliness of the wheelchair. And He loved me even still. Do you know that if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He looks beyond your disabilities? He looks beyond the ugliness of your life? If you've put your faith and trust in Him, He washes away your sins and He covers you in the glorious splendor of His righteousness. When Jesus sees you, when God sees you, He doesn't see your past. He doesn't see your ugliness. He doesn't see your mistakes. He sees you as beautiful. So many of us are living for the opinions of other people that breathe air, that eat and die. We are obsessed with their opinions. But we should be more concerned and more thinking of the opinion of the one that truly matters. That is God Almighty. And if you are in Christ, His opinion of you is you are beautiful. So stop listening to the mirror. Stop consulting with the scale. Stop living up to the standards of the world that you'll never be able to keep. And let the Savior, Jesus Christ, let His love make you beautiful. That's my hope for you. And if you're here today and in your heart you are looking and you're longing for someone to love you, there is someone who loves you. He loved you this much. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And if you in this moment would turn to Him, forsake all reflected glories, and turn to Him the source of true beauty and give your life to Him, He'll make you beautiful. He'll change your life. He'll give you all that you need to live for Him. He loves you. And today, He's inviting you to Him. So I want to invite you right now to pray with me. And while I'm praying, you turn to King Jesus and you say, I accept the invitation. I come to you. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to save me. Would you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, I pray right now for those that are listening, those that are, have been caught up into the obsession of the world chasing after beauty, those who have been caught up living for themselves and, and maybe they've compromised, maybe they, they've stumbled and fell like Esther did. And then they think that there's no way that I'll ever be redeemed. There's no way that I'll ever have a comeback. But yet, as we see in the story of Esther, that her beginning is not her end. And God, I pray right now that those listening to me would come to that place where they would trust you as Savior. That they would maybe pray to you right now and ask you to forgive them of their sins. They would pray a prayer, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that You died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you are who you say you are. And I surrender. I give my life to you. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I ask that you save me. Not on my goodness, but on your goodness. Forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've prayed to trust Christ as your Savior, we want to hear about that. If you're here and you already are a Christian and you want to be like Mike and Wendy and you want to take that next step of baptism, you can do that. Baptism doesn't save you. It shows the world that you are saved. It shows that you have a relationship and that you are loved and accepted by Jesus. Or maybe you have a prayer need. Or maybe you need to talk to somebody. Maybe you're going through a lot of things, insecurities and doubts, and you've, you've fallen into the lies of this world. If so, we want to hear from you. And so I want you to take out your phone and I want you to text to 407-338-4024, 407-338-4024. Put your name and tell us the decision you made to trust Christ as your Savior, to be baptized. You need to talk to somebody. You have a prayer request. You're in big financial need. You, you need somebody to talk to. Let us know. We pray for you and we're going to care for you. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.